This morning, it's our joy and privilege to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. We'll be reading the first 24 verses together. It's a bit of a longer passage. We will not be looking at every verse in detail, but we will be covering uh, the sweep of this passage together and by God's grace, seeing our Lord uh, richly displayed in His Word to us. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows who the and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. O our Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless this, your word, the word of your Son to us through the work of your Spirit. Now help us, we pray, and cause us to see and to know you more fully this morning. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, at many points in the history of the church, we see a passion for proclaiming Christ to the lost. To go through a bit of the sweep of the history of the church, in the early church, there were men like Patrick, who after his conversion headed back to the dark and dangerous Ireland where he had previously been enslaved. A few centuries later, in the 800s, the middle of the darkness of the Dark Ages, there was a small Frankish monastery called Corby. And there, there was a flourishing recovery of biblical truth, including on the Lord's Supper. And that same little monastery sent out missionary monks to the Vikings, a feared, dark, and violent culture that had caused so much harm and so much damage to their lands. In the Reformation, young men with their wives and families came from France to study in Geneva and then went back to France as church planters and evangelists, knowing that their lifespans might well be short under fierce persecution. In the 19th century, young Presbyterian missionaries from Scotland to Africa at times packed their belongings in coffins, knowing the dangers of disease and hostility that they would face. Many of them died after short ministries, but others kept on coming to take their places. Then there's the story of the Scottish Presbyterian mission worker in Nigeria, Mary Slesser. She wanted to reach the lost beyond those who had already heard the gospel, and so she went to the Okeyong people in 1881 who not long before had murdered the first Scottish male missionaries who had attempted to reach them. And she courageously went on her own, thinking that she might be able to better reach them as a woman, as less of a potential threat to this tribe, which was so wary of foreigners. More recently, we can think of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And then just a couple of years ago, 2018, a young man named John Allen Chow who was killed in his attempt to reach the unreached Sentinelese people in the Andaman Islands of India. Well, what moved these men and women to willingly extend themselves to go to hostile places? What motivated them to give up comfort safety, to give up familiarity and close relationships of home? Well, the answer is found throughout Scripture, including in the passage we're turning together this morning in the Gospel of Luke. But as we do, let's first consider it in its wider context. Jonathan Edwards, an early American Puritan, 
in his history of redemption give us a marvelous beginning point as he describes the preparation for Jesus' earthly ministry. He says this, How great a person Jesus is, and how great his mission into the world, seeing there was so much done to prepare the way for his coming. God had been preparing the way for him through all ages from the very beginning. How great a person then he must be for whose coming the great God of heaven and earth, the governor of all things, spent 4,000 years preparing the way. Soon after the world was created and from age to age, he's been doing great things, bringing mighty things to pass, accomplishing wonders without number, often overturning the world in order to prepare for it. He has been causing everything from generation and generation to serve this great design. If we consider the great things that were done in all ages to prepare the way for Christ's coming, we will cry out, who is this? What great person is this? And we will say, who is this King of glory? Surely he is greatly beloved of God. And surely it is a great mission on which he is sent. And yes, here at Second, we know of his great mission. And as we turn to the Gospel of Luke in chapters 9 and 10, we see God the Son incarnate, the one by whom all things have been created, Jesus, in the midst of his earthly ministry, in this world in which we dwell. And there Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, He's fulfilling all righteousness. He's revealing that He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. In Luke 9, we read that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples on their first mission. He goes on to tell them in verse 22 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in the middle of Luke 9, there's this marvelous occasion of the transfiguration. You, the disciples, go with Jesus up the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured, and heavenly glory shines through him. He meets with Moses and Elijah, and God the Father says, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And following on those things, Jesus says to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And we read, He set His face to go to Jerusalem, going to the cross. Well, as He does, as Luke narrates, there are many coming to Him. They're saying, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is the context then, the lead-up to chapter 10, which we're considering this morning. Eyes are being opened as people come to and they're with the Lord, some are coming out of curiosity, but they are changed as they are with Jesus. They become spiritually alive when they were once dead. They become willing servants of God. It's the Lord Himself who is the source of the gospel mission. John Piper puts it this way, when when people are stunned by the greatness of God, they will go out with the ringing message, 
Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Well, as we turn to the beginning of chapter 10, the first verse really stands as an introduction. It's a summary statement of the rest of what comes in the next 16 verses. And here we read verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. It was Jesus who drew these people to himself and who now appoints and sends these 72 anonymous young believers out to go before him, 72 others beyond his 12 disciples. He has the authority to do so. He is the king of glory, and and they're to go out. They're to go ahead of Jesus as he makes his way up to Jerusalem, proclaiming him, proclaiming the Savior has come and is coming. They're heralds of the coming of Christ. And we read Jesus sends them out two by two. Uh, They're sent out together. They do not go out alone. And they're sent out into every town and place where Jesus himself was to go. Oh, God the Son, Jesus, he's not only the Savior of these young believers, uh, but he, he also delights to bring them in to engage in his saving and sanctifying work in the lives of others as his heralds, as his messengers. Why does our Lord do this? Because it's his delight, he tells us, to do the Father's loving will, and because of his own great love to save his lost sheep. In Matthew 9, which is a parallel passage to this, the apostle there tells us, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples the same words that we read now in verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. Now, the picture that might have come to mind to these early disciples would have been something like maybe uh, the, the olive groves, endless rows of olive trees, heavy, loaded with ripe olives, or maybe vineyards uh, with their rows of vines loaded down with bunches of ripe grapes, but only a few people to try to gather in this vast harvest. So few workers, so much to harvest. On Jesus, as he looks out and, and sees these crowds, crowds of people just like us, broken in sin and misery, some with hard hearts, helpless, harassed, weak, weary, struggling. Oh, he sees men, women, and children who belong to his innumerable elect. And though we can hardly imagine a congregation, can you imagine if here at Second we sent out 12 ministers and then a few weeks later we appointed another 72 from our congregation to go out into ministry? Uh, we would think that's a, that's a massive amount of people to send out in that sort. 84 sent out into ministry. But as Jesus looks out at the crowds and as he, 
he looks at the many there, and as he sees the future, the generations to come, oh, he says, the laborers are few compared to the vastness of the harvest. And so he calls these 72 and his 12 and his other followers, and he calls us by his word today to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He tells the 72 to do that and the others to do that. Oh, there are many to be brought to faith through the preaching of the word of the Christ who is come and is coming. And how are they going to hear without preachers, without evangelists, without people to tell them? How will they know? How will they come to hear and to see God in His grace and glory without people to tell them? Now, as Jesus goes on to instruct the 72 in their mission, He does so with perfect wisdom He knows the spiritual context they're going into, the human and cultural context they're going into. He knows what the 72 new disciples need to know in order to accomplish their mission as his heralds. We read in verse 3, Jesus says, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The first thing they need to know and to remember is that He is sending them. This Jesus, who they have just come to know and are becoming aware of and are starting to understand as as bits and pieces of the Old Testament become clear to them, as they see His holiness, as they see His love and compassion, as they've heard that this is God the Son in the flesh. It's Jesus who is so good and who has such power to heal and to save. He is the one who is sending them. He is sending them out. And he tells the 72 disciples they're being sent out as lambs, as baby sheep, young sheep, not even mature sheep. They're being sent out to declare the coming of the Son into a dark world, a world that, just like they were at one point, is at enmity with God, a world that is full of people who love sin, are full of self, and hate God, a world that would like to tear them apart as wolves would do with lambs. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, wisely, lovingly prepares them. Serving Him will mean that they are taking up their cross and following Him. And yes, what a wonderful mystery, even as Jesus uses these words describing them as lambs. Jesus Himself, as John the Baptist said, is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. In the context of what Jesus has just said, verse 4 in some ways is startling. Uh, Jesus says now to them, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. You would think perhaps that if you are being sent out into the midst of wolves, into hostile and dangerous places, that Jesus would have said, gird on your sword, 
make sure you've got your rucksack packed full. Uh, you know, be prepared. That's clear from the rest of Scripture that this is unique to this missionary moment in the Scriptures. It's not a paradigm for missionaries to go out without provision or preparation. But Jesus' ensuing imperatives here make this clear. You know, how are they to go out in the midst of wolves without any provisions? How are they to do this? Look with me to verses 5 through 8. Jesus says, Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. We don't have time this morning to address all of this in detail, but we see several things clearly here. First of all, as they go out, they are bringing the gospel of peace, peace with God to sinners, to rebels. They have a marvelous, positive message to proclaim, just as we do. We have the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to a world that's estranged from God, just as we once were to a world that's at enmity with God and in danger of His wrath and judgment, we bear the good news of peace and of life, of forgiveness of our sin, of change, of being made new, of living in communion with God Himself, of life and life eternal. Oh, they bear a marvelous positive message to the lost. Well, secondly, we see in these verses, the Lord will provide for them as they go out. And how will He provide for them? He's going to supply all their needs in ministry through the people who are being saved, through the fledgling church. As the Word goes out, as they bear this Word, and and people respond to it, and, and they hear of Christ, and and they're ready and eager to come to know Him and to meet Him. Oh, their hearts are also moved and changed. Uh, they, they know the peace of the Lord, and they delight in it, and they want, to, they want to help this work. And we see as well that Jesus impresses the 72. Their work has urgency. They need to stay, stay focused here, intentional. Jesus is on His way up to Jerusalem to the cross and as he is going, the proclamation needs to go out before him. They're not, they're not to be distracted in social conversations with travelers along the way. They're not to, to get distracted off mission and off course. So where home bases for ministry open up, they're to continue working in those locations and receive the care they get with thankfulness and respect. Well, in verse 9, we are told that from each base of ministry in these towns and villages and places, this is what they are to continue doing. Jesus says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Oh, what a marvelous ministry mission this was during Christ's earthly days. 
revealing his grace and power marvelously, uniquely. Can you imagine if you could go today to one of the hospitals here in the upstate, and you could go from floor to floor in the hospital, from room to room in the hospital, and heal the sick, the cardiac patients, the cancer patients, the people dying of a need for a kidney transplant, the children desperately ill, the elderly, and every one, young and old, would come out of their rooms perfectly physically restored, in good health, and walk out of the hospital with you. And not only would they be physically restored, but they would also be spiritually transformed. They'd be made new in their hearts, in their new desire, in seeing God transformed by His grace. Well, Jesus promises the 72 on this mission approaching the cross that His divine power as Creator of the universe, as the Redeemer, the one by whom all things were created, it will be at work in and through them by His Spirit. And the works that they are enabled to do will confirm that the Christ, God the Son, is approaching. He is coming, the one who you need, the one who has come to save you. The works of supernatural restoration accompany spiritual transformation, and they show the kingdom of glory. The King of glory has come. And it's come close to sinners, and they're being called to come to Jesus, by whom they can be welcomed into life with God. Well, these works, as they happen, of course, most importantly, are accompanied by the Word of God. They're to speak of Christ. They're to talk about Christ to these people that they meet. And they're to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, Jesus has just told them that they're going out among wolves, and he goes on now in verses 10 and 11 to tell them the reality that even as they go out on this wonderful mission, they will be rejected. There will be rejection by some. Uh, They will encounter those who remain hard and hostile in the communities they go to, and, and this rejection, as hard as it is for them, does nothing to negate the reality of the coming of the kingdom of God. It doesn't stop the kingdom's advance into the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world. Look with me, verses 10 and 11, to verses 10 and 11. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. It's really quite an amazing juxtaposition. There is a sober, uh, this cultural display of wiping the dust off your feet, something foreign to us, uh, but in the Middle East still can be uh, maybe more aptly understood, easily understood, a sign of a sober uh, judgment and separation. But even as that's as that's displayed and stated where they're rejected, this warning 
uh, that you're cutting yourself off from the kingdom by rejecting the word, still, even with that, comes this gracious call. Even despite your rejection of Jesus, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. It's close. Christ has called you to himself. And that call still stands. Well, Jesus now turns in verses 12 through 16 to address somewhat more deeply the sober reality of gospel rejection. You know, the the proclamation of the 72 starts with positive news of the grace of God in Christ for sinners, but it also includes some weighty words. And uh, Jesus' words here in these verses are just that, very weighty. Verse 12, Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable in that day, in the day of his judgment, for Sodom than for that town that rejects the gospel. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, these three cities were centers where Jesus had ministered already quite extensively. And these were cities that prided themselves on their religiosity. They were observant Jews, in a sense. They were following the rituals. They were places where there were many scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus says, the the evil of the hardness of their heart has become manifest. They really don't want his peace, his grace, his power to save. Yes, they're okay with a form of religion, but they really love their sin. They don't want Christ. What's happening as Christ and his kingdom come is of eternal significance. And it raises the question for us, what are we doing with this marvelous gospel of the Lord Jesus that comes to us, has come to us so often? Are we coming to the Lord who welcomes us and calls us to himself, to life and salvation? But there's another aspect to this as well. Oh, as the disciples went out, The 72 anonymous disciples, uh, they probably went out with some fear, fear of this hostility. People described by the Lord as being like wolves, and perhaps that would make them somewhat hesitant to speak. And I think many of us can testify that we're often there. We feel a little awkward, embarrassed. We don't know how to start a conversation with a neighbor, and so we don't. Uh, we hesitate. Look at how wisely and tenderly Jesus addresses this situation that his disciples will face. He's encouraging them not to fear rejection. And he reminds them that they are not alone when they are rejected in proclaiming who he is. As as they bear his word, uh, he opens their eyes and our eyes to see some more here. Verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. 
The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus is saying, my, my young disciples, as you go out and you do this work with fear, with awkwardness, oh, you are bearing my word. And when your testimony to my glory and grace is stated, is shared, the people who hear you, they're actually hearing me because I am speaking through you. I am with you. I, the living God, am with you. And those who reject you when you speak, those are rejecting you, they're rejecting the Creator, the Redeemer. They're rejecting the Father who sent His Son in love. They're sent, rejecting the Son who has come in love. Oh, you are not alone then in being rejected. I am with you as the living God. Well, after these marvelous and weighty words, there is now a pause in the text. Uh, there is a sort of a gap of silence here after verse 16. Uh, the 70 go out and they're gone, and we have no record of exactly what happened in all of their interactions, but then we read in verse 17, they come back, and they come back with great joy. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They are bursting with excitement and encouragement in the evident fruits the Lord is bringing through their young ministry. Oh, and Jesus encourages them in their joy. And in fact, he, he helps them to even see beyond what they are seeing. And he strengthens them for continued ministry. Verse 18, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus is telling them, Oh, the mission that you are taking part in, my great work of redemption, what you are taking part in is what I have been doing even from the day that Satan was cast out of heaven. As my great work, my mission has unfolded through the history of this world, this is what you are taking part in. As you speak to the lost, as you bear my word, Oh, you are taking part in the grandest, the greatest, the most cosmic reality that there is in all the world. You are taking part in my mighty work of salvation. And I'm going to give you authority to go through dangerous things, physically, emotionally, spiritually, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, we know that that doesn't mean that things wouldn't physically hurt them. Most of the disciples died as martyrs. Uh, you read of the great sufferings and stress that the apostle Paul went through, sleepless nights, weariness, all of these things. But what Jesus is saying is those things, oh, He's not saying they won't hurt in one sense, but they will not hurt you in the sense that 
I will turn them together for your good. I will carry you through them. I will bear you up. I will strengthen you. Uh, all of my days are written in, all of your days are written in my book before there are any of them. I'm the one who's appointed the day of the, your birth and of your death, and nothing will change that. I've redeemed you at the cost of the blood of my son, says the Father. You are secure in my hands. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly Father. Oh, you are safe, even as you do this work in the midst of a broken and dying world of sinners, as a sinner yourself. Well, he also redirect, re redirects their joy to a far greater personal reality for them to rejoice in. The fact that they've received peace from God themselves in and through Him. Verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, that you are able to wage warfare against principalities and powers uh, the high places, the darkness of this world, not only the souls of men and the barriers of sin that we have within ourselves, but of Satan and the fallen angels. Oh, something far greater even than this, Jesus says. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What a marvelous reality. Jesus tells the 72, you're mine. And it's true for each one of us who's trusted in Christ here this morning. Jesus says, you are mine. Your names are written in heaven. You've come to me. You're walking, looking to me. Oh, he knows you're a sinner. He saves sinners. That's the business he's about. Forgiving, sanctifying, growing, keeping. Alba, most marvelous at all of all of this, we read that Jesus himself is filled with joy. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for so was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Our God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. The one who has created all things, the one who sustains them, we're the creatures of His hands along with all of his other creatures. And the incredible, marvelous reality is that the Son has so humbled himself to take your and my constitution, our nature to himself, so that our humanity in holiness is lifted up into the Trinity, into the triune Godhead, we now have the humanity of our Lord, and in and with Him, as Jesus rejoices and He is happy, oh, He is glad in this. It's His delight. 
He says, And all of you, my children, are lifted up into the embrace and the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God of all holiness, the very one who you so offended in your sin and wickedness and still sin against in your remaining sin, who has bought you at such cost the blood of his own dear Son on the cross. Oh, in the overflow of his joy, Jesus blesses and encourages his disciples even more, verse 23 and 24. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh, they're blessed because they've seen Jesus. They've been with Jesus. But you know what? We, We have even more than the 72 had when Jesus said that. We have the fullness of what Christ has done, accomplished. We have Jesus crucified, risen, ascended in our nature, in our flesh, sitting in heaven right now, reigning over all things, seeing us with the Father, the Spirit's presence with us and working in us as He reigns over all things and does this great work. Well, why did the 72 disciples go? What has motivated so many men and women since to willingly extend themselves into hostile places and sometimes simply to willingly extend themselves into the ordinary places of life like many of us? What has motivated them at times to have awkward conversations, to pursue hard things, to address sin in a family member's life? What motivates the Lord's people to go out? It's what our Lord has said to us in these last verses. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. What motivated them What motivates us and what gives us strength is this. It's being with Jesus. It's coming into the presence of the Lord, being with Him, seeing Him, and knowing that it is He who saves us and sends us and is pleased to use people like us, mystery of mysteries, for His glory, for His kingdom. Oh, he wants us to see that he rejoices over us. This is why in the year 2018, just a few years ago, a young man who prepared his life to serve in gospel mission, John Chow, wrote these words. You guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people, to this tribal island where anybody who tried to come was attacked or killed. This unreached group. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is worth it. 
It's worth it for us in the places the Lord has put us. Oh, it's so worth it to serve our great Lord. Let's pray to him that he would send us out here in Greenville and the upstate. We just need to look around. We look at our own hearts. Look around. Oh, people who are working downtown, lost in sin, in darkness, alienated from God, on our campuses, in the streets, in the shops, living in homeless encampments in the woods, along the road, living in sin, some polished, some absolutely destroying themselves evidently around us. And he has given us the message of peace and life, abundance. Let's pray that he would send us out and that he would raise up many more. That he would do as he did in those days, 12, then 72. And do the same in our midst. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the riches of your grace. We thank you that you have been pleased to save a people like us. We do pray this morning, Lord, for any among us uh, who maybe, Lord, have simply been going through the outward motions of Christianity, but are still in love with sin, are still hard. Oh God, we pray that you would bring them into your kingdom with us. Oh, how we thank you that you are pleased to use weak means to fulfill your will, Lord. We are two little lambs, uh, little children before you. But we pray that you would use us for great things, even as you did with the 72. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the great mystery of your joy over us, your great love over us, how good you are. Oh, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.